0: The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. One of the things we neglected in the uh, video announcements was Project Angel Tree. Angel Tree is an opportunity for us to provide gifts to the sons and daughters or folks who are incarcerated. There's an angel tree table set up on the table in the hallway so uh, you can uh, stop there, pick up one of those angels and get your gifts in. Uh, as soon as you can. Also, uh, Aggies, why don't you go ahead and get your whoop in right now with Johnny Puckston Okay, that's enough. Too bad you couldn't beat LSU. That's all I can say about that. We begin our series. If you look at uh, the banners behind us, if you look on the uh, top of your insert, it says in John 6 29, this is the work of God. The work of God is this to believe in the one. He has sent. And to kick off our holiday sermon series, uh, would you welcome Stephen back in the pulpit? He hadn't been up here in a while. Morning. So as, as we think this holiday season of, of the one who was sent, uh, next week Gary's going to be asking the, the interesting question, well, what if Jesus had never been sent? I always think that's an interesting scenario to play out in your mind. What if Jesus was never sent? Then the week after that we'll be looking at the nature of the one who was sent, and then we're going to finish up by looking at what it means for us to be sent as Christ was sent. But first things first, to kick off this morning, we're going to be looking at the authority, the authority of the one who was sent. And uh, we're going to start in Matthew chapter 1 because that's how the Christmas story gets going, isn't it? Uh, in fact, it's how the whole entire New Testament gets going. And we have this list of names, this genealogy. Uh, I'm just going to read you part of that. It says there, a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. The son of Abraham. Then we jump down to verse six. And Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam the father of Abijah. Abijah the father of Asa. Asa the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat the. Father of, well, you get the idea. And um, well, let's let's pray. Father, we we thank you. For every part of your word and uh, father this morning we're here uh, to begin our Christmas celebrations to think about the the, the one you've sent to us and for us and for your glory father we pray that you give us a renewed appreciation for this old familiar story in Jesus name amen so have you ever felt that this was you know really a rather dull way to begin the Christmas story Now, let me be honest, right? Have you ever thought this is really a boring way to start out a story like this? You know, I mean, it's really just this list of names. It's a bit like reading the phone book, isn't it? Right? I mean, it's it's this, this list of names of so-and-so was the father of so-and-so, who was the father of so-and-so, who was the father of so-and-so, who was the father of so-and-so. I mean, it's, like, it's like those bits in the Old Testament, isn't it, which you, which you skip over because uh, they're boring, right? So, you, you, okay, am I the only one who does that? I don't know. So, you, so the, there's a lot of begetting, you know, be, so-and-so begat so-and-so, who begat so-and-so, who be, you know, a lot of begetting and begatting that goes on in, in those passages. But, you know, if you're going to tell this story of the, the story of God becoming man, that God, the God of the universe, coming to earth, surely there's a more exciting way to begin a story like that. And of course, we know that there is. Right? This is why I've always preferred the way the Apostle John begins the Christmas narrative. He starts it like this, doesn't he? He says, "In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was." God, and God became flesh, and the word became flesh, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, See, there's so much more dramatic, isn't it, and and, and poetic, right, I mean, you can almost hear James Earl Jones' voice and and, and the kind of the, the background music that goes along with that, right, it's a lot more quotable, isn't it, yeah. Um, uh, John's got a little bit of style and panache with the way he begins the Christmas story, but Matthew, Matthew, I can make this story boring too. He he begins with he he begins with this list. For the longest time, I thought, you know, this is really the dullest way you could begin what should be the most exciting story, the Christmas story. Why does Matthew begin with this list? What does this list do? If lists can do things, can, can lists do things? If lists can do things, what does this list do, and how does it do it? Why is this list here, and what does it really accomplish? Right? How does it work? Of course, as usual, in order to answer these kinds of questions, we, we have to make sure that we're reading this, this list, as we would any passage of Scripture, this list in its context, right? So we, don't, we want to read this list in the context of the entire Gospel of Matthew. Now, you'll be pleased to know this morning we're not going to sit here and try and read through the entire Gospel of Matthew from beginning to end. We don't have that kind of time, but I will tell you this. From beginning to end, the Gospel of Matthew is concerned to point to and establish the authority, the authority of Jesus Christ. Let me give you just a a couple of examples. So, so you remember when Jesus finishes his inaugural address and he gets down from preaching the Sermon on the Mount, that's what I'm talking about, and he gets down and, and so his, you can just imagine the audience, thinking, oh he's done, and there's a little bit of stunned silence and then they look at each, friends look at each other and a smile crosses their faces and one of them says, yeah, he, that was different, and they'll say, yeah, he's not like the other guys, oh you, you mean the Pharisees and the and the teachers of the law, yeah, he's not like them, he preaches as one with authority. Do you remember that? He preaches as one with authority. Later on in Jesus' ministry, he heals the paralytic. And do you remember that the the friends can't get their paralytic friend to Jesus because of all the crowds. So they get up on the roof of this house and they they cut a hole and they lower this uh, paralytic friend down to put forward Jesus' feet. And Jesus takes pity on him and he says, son, your sins are forgiven. And, and you know, the, the, the Pharisees in year shot of this, they're disgusted. I mean, they're, they're like, this is blasphemy. Who does he think he is to forgive sins? And, and so Jesus, right before he tells this man to get up and walk, he turns to the Pharisees and says, so that you may know that the son of man has authority, authority on earth to forgive sins. And of course, Jesus drives out the demons. And, and of course, he, he calms the storm, Right, And each time he does this, people are thinking, who is this? The questions of his authority come up. Who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? Even the demons listen to him. What kind of authority is that? And, and of course, we haven't caught it all the way through Matthew, uh, right at the end, Jesus sums it up for us. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So right from the beginning to the end, all the way through, Matthew is establishing the authority of Jesus Christ. And, uh, and he's doing the same thing here right at the beginning. He starts as he means to go on. With this list, what Matthew is doing is he is establishing the authority of Jesus Christ um, and over and against the, the authority, that the, the many other groups and individuals who were clamoring for and claiming authority for themselves. How do we tend to recognize authority in, in our day and age, in, in the 21st century, in the, in the Western world? How do we recognize and how do people claim authority? Sometimes it's positional, isn't it? You know, sometimes it has to do with the position someone has. And you, and you hear this, don't you, when someone says, look, I'm your dad, so you've got to listen to me, right? Or, or I'm the boss here, so you, you've got to listen to me. Or I think the worst one is, you know, I'm your husband, so you, you've got to listen to me, woman, right? So, so, you know, usually what that means is, is that when you have to claim your position like that, you know what that means? It means that you, something's happened, you don't actually have much authority in that situation. <laughs> right? At least that's what my wife tells me. Isn't that right, darling? So... So, so, this is, but, but, so sometimes it's positional, but I think more often than not, I, th- I think more often than not, we, we tend to look at someone's uh, qualifications. Maybe they've got some sort of expertise that makes them an authority in some area. Right? They've got some education, they've got some training, they've got some experience, they've got some accomplishments, something that qualifies them, gives them some sort of specialization, some expertise that makes them an authority. But in the ancient Near East, that the kind of uh, authority that they tended to lean towards was the more of this kind of positional authority. Now, there were two ways that you could establish yourself as as an authority and as a major player in Israel's national life. Two ways you could do this. First of all, through a genealogy, a little bit like this, right? So, so, you know, you prove that you were the firstborn, the rightborn, wellborn, uh, from the best line, and all of that. Then then this gave you some kind of authority, bloodlines, lineage, all of that. that's one way, and we're going to look at that kind of authority claim in in, in a while. Uh, But but first of all, there was this other way you could establish authority, and it had to do with your position in regards to the temple. If, If you could establish some sort of link to the temple, you know, maybe you built the temple. Maybe you refurbished the temple. Maybe you rebuilt the temple. Maybe you ran things at the temple. But if you had something to do with the temple, you were a somebody. So, so imagine it like this. The, the, the temple is right at the center of, of Israel's social structure. And then imagine these concentric circles going around the outside of the temple. And the further out you were on those circles, the further out your social circle was from the temple, the less authority and the less influence you had in Israel's national life. So so, so let me give you a couple of examples here. King King, uh, King Herod, right, he needs no introduction. He's the the, the infamous villain of the Christmas story of the nativity, right? He had these kind of aspirations for this kind of Davidic, uh, messianic authority, Uh, This is why he built the temple. So so he rebuilt the temple. And so he could point to it and say, look, this authority flows on the temple. I'm God's man. And and maybe he didn't think he was the Messiah. But he certainly thought, well, look, I'm I'm the rightful heir of David. I'm the rightful king. I'm God's man for this job. And then, of course, there were the Sadducees who were like the the aristocracy of Jerusalem. uh, And so they cooperated. Very nicely with King Herod. And because they cooperated with Herod, Herod gave them the right to run things at the temple. So, so Herod rebuilt the temple and the, the Sadducees ran the temple. And together they had enormous influence and authority in Israel. Where were the, where were the Pharisees in all this? Well, well, they were a kind of disgruntled, disenfranchised lot precisely because they didn't have this kind of link to the temple. They didn't have that kind of tie to the temple, and so they were marginalized. Now, you take this list, and you read this list in that context. You read this list in that context that I just described for you. Suddenly, what we've got here is not just another boring list of names anymore, but but what we have here is a very dramatic, very explosive beginning to, to this story. And I know the question in your head is, well, well how? How's that then? And, and I want to answer that question. If you give me about two minutes, okay, I'm going to get there. Okay, But for right now, I just want you to imagine this like, like it, it was the, be- the beginning scene. This, this list here is the beginning scene of a movie, which is this very intense action sequence where um, there's maybe an explosion. Maybe there's a shootout. Maybe there's a car chase. Something like that. And after the intense action sequence is over, that the movie flashes back. And, and it begins at the beginning, and the story starts to unfold and tell you how you got, tells you how you got to that intense, dramatic opening sequence. So you've had the dramatic opening sequence, uh, this full of action, and, and then the the movie flashes back to this earlier point, uh, and it starts to catch up with itself, as it were. Do you, do you like those kind of movies? I love those kind of movies because I, I, mean, I think there's a very exciting way to begin a, uh, any story that you're telling. Why not start where the action is? Um, and so what I want you to imagine is in this first scene, this dramatic opening sequence, what I want you to imagine is that uh, someone is placing dynamite or some explosives at the base of the temple. And, and uh, what, maybe the way I imagine it is you can't really see them. There's shadows and it's kind of dark, but you, 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 can, you maybe see these gloved hands placing the explosives at the base of the temple. And once they're done, they set the clock and, and the little red numbers start to count down the time. Or, or better still, maybe they step back into the shadows and they press a little red button that sends a radio frequency and the, the whole thing comes down. You see this demolition of the temple. Or, or, you know, maybe that's a little bit unrealistic, right? Because we know they weren't using radio frequencies back then. So maybe it's maybe lots of long wires and one of those TNT plungers, you know? So, 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 however you want to imagine this, but imagine that kind of scene around the temple. Because what Matthew is doing with this list, right? And, and I've got, give me another 30 seconds and I will tell you how he's doing this, okay? But what Matthew is doing with this list is he is not only establishing the authority of Christ, but at the same time, he's demolishing the temple as a grounds of authority. He is is not just going around questioning the authority of King Herod and questioning the authority of the Sadducees. He is demolishing the very grounds on which all these other people have claimed their authority. Remember that all authority flows out of the temple. They've tied all authority to the temple. right? And so with this list, he's going to blow that temple up. So so once he's done with this list, these other people are going to have nowhere left to stand. Okay, now the question that I've been pushing off for a couple of minutes, of course, is, is how does this do that? How does this list, there's a lot we just described there, isn't it? There's a very dramatic opening sequence, there's demolition and and all of that. How does this list accomplish that? What does this list have to do with the temple at all? Well, um, in order to answer that question, this is the moment in the movie where we have the flashback, right? So we've had the dramatic opening sequence, Temple demolition. Now we've got the flashback, and we go back to a much earlier scene. Who is the first person listed, after Jesus Christ, of course, but who is the first person listed in this genealogy, in the Christmas story, actually an entire New Testament, after Jesus? David, right? King David. Okay. First of all, he establishes this link with King David. So we're going to flashback to this moment in David's life. And there's this moment in King David's life where he has determined that he is going to build, he is going to build the temple. Now, you know, I don't know how far he got with this temple. You know, maybe, maybe he'd already got his architects to draw up some blueprints and plans by the time he calls the prophet Samuel in to come and have a look. And he says, well, what do, you, what do you think? And Samuel gives his rubber stamp of approval. He gives a seal of approval. He says, yeah, go ahead, this is going to be good. That's what Samuel says at first. I don't know whether he'd already uh, made a public announcement about this, perhaps. Had he already got the trucks there, almost ready to, to pour the concrete for the foundations of this thing? What we do know is this was not just a passing thought. It wasn't just a casual conversation. He had determined in his heart that this was something he was going to do. He was going to build the temple. and then, And then God speaks. And God says, you are not the one to build a house for me to dwell in. I have not dwelt in the house from the day I brought Israel up out of Egypt to this day. Did I ever say to any of their leaders whom I commanded to shepherd my people, why have you not built me a house of cedar? So so the first question is, why is David doing this? Is he doing this for God or is he doing this for himself? God's saying, I've never asked you to do this. I haven't asked any of the other leaders of Israel to. Why are you doing this? So, so is he doing this to establish himself, his future, his throne, his legacy? You know, when I look at my own heart, and, and I look at the times when I say, I'm going to do this for God, you know, you know what, usually there's a little bit of God in there, and then there's a little bit of me in there. Actually, there's always a lot of me in there, right? And then there's a little bit for God. Okay, so, so probably for David, there, there was this mix of motives. And then God says, I took you from the pasture and from following the flock to be ruler over my people Israel, I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. But God reminds him of his past. He reminds him, he says, of where he's come from. He says, you were the shepherding sheep in the backwaters of some backwater town. Oh little town of Bethlehem, how still we see you lie. Right? You remember this is where Jesus is born, and it's that same little town of Bethlehem where, where outside in the field somewhere, David was shepherding sheep centuries earlier. Right? And, and he was the youngest son in his family. He was a nobody from nowhere, and God raises him up and makes him king. Having reminded him of his past, God starts to talk about David's future. And he says this, Now I will make your name by the names of the greatest men of the earth. I declare to you that the Lord will build a house for you. When your days are over and you go to be with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build the house for me, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be his father. And he will be my son. I will set him over my house and my kingdom forever. His throne will be established forever. God reminds him, look, you didn't make you king. I made you king. And as far as your future goes, you're not going to establish your future. I will establish your future. You will not build a house for me. I will build a house for you. Verse 7, you will not build a house for me. Verse 11, God's turned it all around. I'm going to build a house for you you and this list is that house you see this is not just a list of names that this is the fulfillment of that promise that god made to david i am going to build a house for you this is the house this list this genealogy is the house that god built the house of david it is strange and ironic that all of these people back in David's time had kind of tied all authority. They all wanted to be have this Davidic messianic authority and they tied all that authority to the temple, the temple which David never built. had nothing to do with it. You know, by way of analogy with, with, our, own, with our own lives, I know that some of us here are working very hard to establish ourselves with God. We, we, want, we want to establish ourselves with God. You know, I, I used to think to myself... You know, if if I could just get my act together. You know, if I I could just quit this particular sin and if I could start doing more of this other stuff I know I should be doing, then I can get right with God and I can establish myself and have a future with Him. And you know what I was trying to do is I was trying to take my sin seriously. I was. But you know what I discovered? I wasn't taking my sin nearly seriously enough. I had no idea. And I wasn't even beginning to understand the holiness and the goodness and the righteousness of God. So there are some of you here this morning who have been, who've been feeling the call of God in your life. You know that he's been tugging on your heartstrings and you're like, well, you have been pushing it off. And you've been pushing it off maybe the last few months. Maybe the last few years—I don't know. You've you've been saying, "Well, one day I'll start following Jesus. You know, one day I'm going to go and get baptized. I'll identify with him. All of that good stuff." But, but for right now, you know, I need to unload some of this baggage, and and I need to repent of some. I need to get rid of these these particular sins altogether, and and then I need need to, and then I need to start doing more of this stuff, which I know I should be doing. And first of all, here's the thing: you probably should be. You know, you probably should be doing those things. But here's the thing: first of all, I appreciate your sensitivity to your sin. You know, we live in a world where people just shrug, shrug their shoulders and laugh it off, you know? It's all, it's all a big joke. But, but you know, I, so I appreciate the fact that you are trying to take your sin seriously. But let me tell you this. If you think that by doing a little bit more of this and a little bit less of that, that you can get right with God and establish yourself with Him, you haven't even begun to understand the gravity of your own sin and, and the gravity of God's holiness and goodness and righteousness and perfection. You know, there, there are others of you here this morning, and I, I, know, I know that you, you have been trying your best to follow Jesus this year, but you know from, the, from 1st of January 2012 till now, as we come to the end of this year and we're approaching Christmas and we're approaching a new year, you've, you've made one screw-up after another. One bad decision after another. And right now, at the end of this year, you feel like your sins are piled sky high. And you feel like you're dangling from a thread. And you're thinking, you know, maybe maybe this is the year that God's done with me. 2012, that was it. Again, I, w- I want to say I appreciate you trying to take your sins seriously. But I'm going to tell you this. If you think by doing a little bit more of this and a little bit less of that, you can get right with God and establish yourself with him and a future with him you haven't even begun to understand the gravity of your sin. And you haven't got any perspective on the goodness and righteousness and holiness and perfection of God. Now, God says to David, you will not build me a house. I will build you a house. And this list, this is the the fulfillment of that promise. This is the house that God built, the house of David. Maybe this Christmas, instead of seeking to establish yourself. Maybe this Christmas what you need to do is allow God to establish you. Maybe this Christmas season uh, what you need to do is to quit trying to save yourself because we need saving from ourselves. We can't save ourselves. That's why he sent a savior. This Christmas quit trying to save yourself and allow God to save you. Maybe this Christmas what you need to do is to quit trying to forgive yourself. You know, I hear that all the time. I, I've just got to learn to forgive myself. You know, it sounds right. sounds right. I, I, used, to, I used to think that way. I'm not just saying that. I, I was there, been there, done that, gone round and round in circles trying to forgive myself. Okay? But, but here's the thing. Who are you? Who are you to forgive? Right? This is the kind of thinking that gets us into trouble in the first place. Quit trying to forgive yourself and receive the forgiveness of God. God says, God says, you will not build me a house. I will build you a house. And this is a fulfillment of that promise. This is the house that God built. And right at the end of this list is the name of Jesus, the one who has authority to forgive you. Okay, we said there were two ways, two ways to, um, to establish uh, yourself in Israel. One was... Your position in regards to the temple. The other one was your position in regards to birthrights and and blood, lineage, genealogy. If you could prove that you were the firstborn, the rightborn, the bestborn, wellborn, of the right line, with the right blood, then this would mean that it gave you some sort of authority. And and I want to give you a kind of an illustration because there were some very strict parameters in which this thing was meant to work. There were were some conventions which were meant to be followed. I want to give you an example of how this works. A few few weeks ago, uh, I I was meant to be on a a, a trip or a mission trip to Rwanda, um, but a couple of days before we left, I got a call from my parents telling me that my grandfather had died. And so we immediately changed the tickets, and the next day I was on a plane to Singapore. My grandfather was Korean, but he was living in Singapore. I was on a plane to Singapore to go and take my grandfather's funeral. And, and it was a real privilege to, to be able to, to do that, because um, you get to hear stories that you hadn't heard before, little details that you, you weren't uh, aware of. Um, and, and so one of the things that was passed down from my grandfather to my dad is this, uh, this medal. And here's a picture of my, my grandfather and these, these these medals that he has. And, and these medals were passed down to my grandfather by his uh, father, my great-grandfather, right? and uh, what what had happened was my great grandfather had received these medals from the uh, korean government because what had happened was d- during the, the, at one point they had wanted to see this kind of pan asian cooperation right uh, a little bit like a european union but out in asia this is way back in the early 1900s um, but uh, they were under korea was under this japanese occupation and they felt that the the, the japanese emperor was actually a reasonable man, but they felt that the Japanese prime minister who was running this occupation, it was, it was very brutal, uh, that there, there were tens of thousands of Koreans who were, were killed and, and imprisoned, and so they felt that this this guy was the problem and stopping this kind of pan-Asian cooperation. So my great-grandfather and four of his friends, they got together and they planned and they carried out the assassination of this, uh, this Japanese prime minister. Okay, so, so um, they had to go, they were exiled to uh, China where they set up the, um, the uh, provisional Korean government in, in, China, in Shanghai. And a guy in the middle there, that's my great-grandfather. And so he gets this medal. And this medal gets passed from my great-grandfather to my grandfather to my dad because he's the elder son. And then it works for four generations. On the fourth generation and I get to use this medal. So it goes to the elder son, to the elder son, to the elder son. Now, one of the things that I can do with this medal is I can get someone off death row in Korea. Which is kind of funny, really, because I can't even talk my way out of a parking ticket here. I can't. I mean, yeah, I've got one of these really annoying friends who is always able to talk himself out of anything with the police, with these parking traffic violations. I can never do that. But in Korea, I can get someone off death row with this with this thing. So, but there are some very strict parameters. I'll tell you who can't use this medal. My aunts. My dad has got two sisters. One of the sisters is older than he is right, an older sister, and yet because she's a she, right, it's just the way culturally and historically things were set up back then, because she's a she, she doesn't get to, she doesn't she doesn't get to use it, has to go to the eldest son, tell you who else can't get to use it is my younger brother, well, he's a boy, he's a son, right, he's a male, and um, he's in the right bloodline, but he's a second son, not the first, so I'm going to have fun waving that in his face one day, right, (laughs) hopefully not when he's on death row, you know, or something like that, so, 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 but, so. So, you know, th- this is, and I'll tell you some, who else can't use it, if you haven't got an ounce of Korean blood in you, you don't get to use it either. I mean, you, because you're obviously not the, from the right bloodline. Blood so these are the very strict parameters in which these things work. That this is, this is, there's some very strict conventions which these things are meant to follow. This is how these things are meant to, to, to work. Um, now look at this list. What kind of list is this? I mean, seriously, where are the parameters? Where are the conventions? I mean, they've been thrown to the wind. What kind of list is this? If you look closely at this list, what you'll notice is that there are women mentioned. And not just women, there are four women mentioned. And and if you look closely, what you'll discover is that a couple of those women were prostitutes. One of them prostituted herself to her father-in-law. The other one was a prostitute by profession. She played one in real life. And, and, then, and then there were, if you look closely, you'll discover that one of these women was not even a Jew, was a Moabite. Was a Moabite. Now we've got Gentile blood in the mix. What kind of lineage is this? Right? And, and then if you look closely, what you'll see is that there are sometimes second sons who are mentioned. And, and sometimes it's even worse than that. It's not just second sons. Sometimes there are the younger sons, the last born, are mentioned what kind of lineage is this what is what is matthew doing with this list at first it looks like a you know a, a kind of regular genealogy doesn't it right what, the one that uh, a typical claim to authority conventional predictable but as you look closely and you notice all these twists and turns in this genealogy the women the prostitutes the gentiles the second sons the younger sons you suddenly realize that this list breaks with convention and breaks with cultural expectations at every single turn And once again, we realize what Matthew is doing. Matthew is not just establishing the authority of Jesus. He is at the same time demolishing the grounds on which other people would claim their authority. Firstborn, rightborn, wellborn. Apparently, it has nothing to do with any of that because authority never flowed from those things. Authority flows from God. And in case we we missed the point, uh, this whole convention of genealogies is shaken to the core. The whole convention of genealogies is shaken to the core because of what he says next. He says, and of course, we know that Jesus was no blood relative because he's been tracing the line through Joseph. And he says, well, you know, Joseph wasn't actually because this was a virgin birth. Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary. And what, what Matthew's doing is he's pointing to this inexplicable event, something which we barely have language for, the virgin birth. And by coupling the virgin birth with this genealogy, but coupling the virgin birth with this genealogy, what we're looking at here is an authority that transcends blood and birthright. What we're seeing here is an authority that transcends temple, blood, and birth. You, you know, I think you'd, you'd agree with me, right, uh, if I was to say that, you know, we've, we've never really said all there is to say about God. Right? I mean, we've never really exhausted God. I mean, he's infinite. Isn't there always something exciting and new to come and understand and grow in our knowledge of him? If there isn't, then maybe we've, we're, not talking about, we're not talking about God anymore. You know, that, that might be the, the situation. We've never, even those things we think we have established about God and we've got sussed and we've explained well, um, even those things, you know, they're never complete. They're never finished, right? I mean, I mean look, just think of it this way. Try to describe... Turn to the person sitting next to you and try to describe the aroma of coffee. Yeah, you don't even know where to begin with that, right? I don't. aroma of coffee. Well, it's kind of like... Right, so if our language can't wrap itself around the aroma of coffee. Think about this. Our language is never going to wrap itself around God. We've never exhausted God. There's always more. Right? There's always more. But you know what I think had happened in Israel? I think they got to the point where they thought, well, ah, we've got it sus. we've said all there is to say about God. We we know the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the King Herod in their own way, in their own systems, their own conventions, they've decided we know who this God is. We know exactly how he works. We know exactly what he's going to do and how he's going to do it. This is how his authority works. It works within these parameters. It works within this uh, framework and he never steps out of those bounds. This is how God and his authority flow and work. And so the, the authority of God, instead of being this This free, boundless, life giving authority. It had become this stale, dry, predictable, conventional authority trapped in a temple and bound by conventions about blood and birthrights. What about you? Do you find yourself trapped? Do you feel like you're kind of stuck? stuck in some sort of rut. I'm not talking about sometimes you know, things at work get a little bit boring. Now, that's always going to be the case. There's always some boring times. Even my job gets like that, believe it or not. Sometimes. you know. So it's, I'm talking about life as a whole. I mean, some of your relationships. Maybe your relationship is stuck in a rut with your, with your spouse. The way you talk to your wife is just unkind. The way why you talk to your husband is just wrong. It's unhealthy. But you're looking at this relationship and you're thinking, nothing's going to change there is no new. Even God can't change this. You, you know, what what about, what about some of your friendships? Maybe it's those friendships have grown stale somewhere. Your relationships have worked. Maybe they've grown stale and you're thinking, yeah, there's, nothing's gonna, no, there's nothing new going to happen. Even God can't change. Maybe it's even your relationship with God. Your relationship with God has grown stale. And, and you're looking at God and you're thinking, well, there's God and here's me and nothing's going to change. I'm still me, God's still God, and you know nothing's going to change. Nothing new is going to happen. Even God can't change this. Let me suggest to you that when life gets like that, when life gets like that, what, what's happened is, is it may have something to do with the way that we talk about God and, and His authority. I, I think something's happened to the way we talk about God and His authority. Has God become for you a series of cliches? Has God and His authority been? taken captive by a series of cliches that you often repeat. Well, maybe you've got a more sophisticated way of talking about God like that. Maybe you've got an entire system, a theological system out of which authority flows. But lately, it feels like you're trapped in that system and you think God's trapped in there with you. You know what my prayer is for you this Christmas? My prayer is that you are going to, you you will rediscover, as we retell this Christmas story, you will rediscover this free and boundless, life giving authority of God that transcends our conventions and our systems and everything we have built and everything that we are. And who knows, maybe this Christmas you will even discover a new way to talk about God. Now I've got to be careful with what I'm saying here. Let me just be clear. I'm not saying, I'm not saying that you can just go along and 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 make stuff up off the top of your head. Well, that's my new way of talking about God. That's that's not what I'm saying. You know, there was a few years ago there was this this TV evangelist who got got up and said there are nine people in the doctrine in, in the in the in the Godhead in the Trinity. Maybe he just didn't understand how language works, you know. Triune, Trinity. Maybe he just didn't get that. But you know, so, so eventually he had to repent of that. And, but that was a new idea, but it was it was nonsense. It was heresy. Uh, no, I'm I'm not saying that we we need to hold on to doc, sound doctrine. Uh, I, I'm not talking about a, a departure from orthodoxy. Uh, I'm saying what we need to do is, is we need to we need to cling more closely to the story that God is telling. Immerse ourselves in it. You know, if if Israel's leaders were immersed in the story God was telling, you know, I think they would have seen a new thing. The new thing that, that God was doing by, well, bringing in the second son here. And if they'd allowed the story God was telling to grip their hearts, I think they would have noticed this new thing that God was doing by bringing in the younger son. And if they'd allowed this story to take root and grip them, And run their lives. I I think they would have noticed the new thing that God was doing uh, when when he brought in the, the, the prostitutes and when he brought in the Gentiles. And who knows? They may have even, if they'd known the authority of God through that story, the authority that always transcended temple and lineage, they just might. They just might have been ready for the new thing God was about to do as he sent his only son. Let's pray. So, Heavenly Father, I, I want to pray, first of all, for my friends here who uh, have been struggling with their sin and, and are thinking, you know, maybe God's done with me. Or I can't even begin to follow him because of uh, I'm just not good enough. Father, I, I pray that they will remember the way that you promised to David that he would not build you a house, he would build him a house. Father, I pray that they would quit trying to establish themselves, save themselves, forgive themselves. Would you just pray for those people you know in your life? Just name them before God now who are in that situation. Father, we pray for these friends of us, that they would receive your forgiveness this Christmas. And Father, I pray for my friends who are stuck in a rut, who have forgotten the free, boundless, life-giving authority of God that brings newness of life. And Father, I, I pray that this Christmas story would grip them once again and breathe new life into their lives. So I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And we're dismissed.